gender roles in marriage. I, I sometimes describe this topic as walking through a minefield with snowshoes blindfolded. Um, I'm bound to offend somebody. There's bound to be something or really qualifications that could attend everything I say. So let me try to give the big qualification at first. I think that it's important that we understand that there are gender roles in Scripture. I don't think there's a lot of detail about gender in the Bible. I think that often more traditional Christian camps have tended to overstate and um, make draw conclusions that probably aren't biblically supported. But on the other hand, we live in a culture that wants to argue that there's no um, kind of relationships that are connected to who we inherently are either. So it's a complicated topic, and it's particularly complicated to talk about with college students because there's just so many ideas swirling around. When we talk about this, we are bumping up against something that affects really every issue, but you don't notice it with every issue like you might notice it with this one. And the thing that I'm talking about is what we call epistemology. Now, epistemology means the study of how do you know what you know? Why do you believe what you believe? This is, you know, ideally what freshman seminar is to help you think through and clarify. I don't know what your experience was uh, in that, but I, that, that's, it's, a, it's a noble thing to take some time and think about why do you believe what you believe. It is. Um, from the very beginning uh, of the Bible story, of the story of mankind, in the creation account, God speaks and says, this is how you're to live. Mankind is told how to live. And part of that means you're not to do this, which is to eat of this tree. But there becomes this issue where mankind, it says, saw that the tree that was off limits was pleasing to the eye and good for food, and so they ate. And there what you have is the very first instance of epistemological rebellion. You say, really? I didn't notice that. No. What's going on is God's word says this, and man says, well, I think, my judgment about it is, it's good to eat. Even though God says it's not good to eat, I think it's good to eat. Always, always epistemology is at work. Often we haven't thought about it or examined why we believe what we believe. When you come to a university context, the issue of epistemology is always in play. And there are lots of competing voices trying to define ultimately what is true and what can be relied upon. There is logic, there is reason, there is the scientific method, there is intuition, there are your emotions, there are authorities, whether they be divine or human, there are all these different things. And often what's interesting is in a university context, there, there's a guy, um, Charles Malick, who was the Secretary General of the UN, I think back in the 70s, and he wrote a really great little book. It's out of print now and hard to find, but it's a great little book called A Christian Critique of the University. What he argues in that book is that the idea of a university really is rooted in the Christian worldview, in the idea that there is a unifying uh, element to all truth, that all truth is God's truth. This was widely held by Christians of various types. For instance, John Calvin 
um, who often is regarded as a pointy-headed fundamentalist, but he was nothing of the sort. As a matter of fact, when talking about people like Plato and Aristotle, he said that there is truth in what they wrote and that if you don't regard truth as truth wherever you find it, you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He was not a, an obscurantist, that we would say, somebody that said only the Bible teaches us about things. He said, no, that there are two books of God. There is the book of nature and then there is God's word, the scripture. And rightly interpreted, both of them will agree with one another. But what Malik argues in his book, The Christian Critique of the University, is we've lost, for, for in, in many ways, we've lost the idea of a unifying aspect of truth, a capital T truth. And what you end up having is not a university, but a diversity, where all of the various disciplines think that they can explain all of life in terms of their discipline. In other words, sociology thinks that it can explain everything. So does economics. So does philosophy. So do the hard sciences. All these different things think that they have really the ultimate view of what's true and why you should believe it. And some of these things, I think, you know, it's, it's difficult when you're in the university as if you're trying to think Christianly about all of these disciplines. You have to try and think, well, what does Scripture say and what does this discipline say? And can I even learn from this thing even if um, I disagree with it at, here, at this point? Even if I don't think that sociology understands everything correctly, particularly if they leave out the fact that we're human beings created in God's image to worship, if you leave that out and you rule that out of bounds, some of your conclusions are inevitably going to be incorrect or insufficient, not full, not complete. Uh, Calvin said it well. He said that a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is a complete untruth. And so there are a lot of right observations that various disciplines make, and yet sometimes when they try to say that this is the full explanation of everything, if God's left out of it, then it's incomplete. Now, I would say, you know, even at a Christian university, you need to be thinking about those sorts of things. When we come into this idea of gender roles, there are lots of competing voices. How do you know before you can even talk about gender roles, you have to even think about, well, how do I know? Does the Bible have the right to tell men and women how they're to live in marriage? Well, it depends on what you think marriage is. If you think marriage is a mutually negotiated contract between two people on how they're going to live together, well, then God may not really have a role in that. But if you think marriage is God's idea to teach the world and his people what his love is like, well, then he has a whole lot to say to us about how we're to live in that relationship. And while, you know, the psychologists and the sociologists and the biologists and all these different people may have contributions to make, it's important that, that we think Christianly about all of those things. Uh, Dr. Winner, who's the professor of uh, the counseling professor, head of the counseling department at Covenant Theological Seminary, um, likes to use the story of Humpty Dumpty to explain kind of what we're talking about here, right? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. There are a lot of, there are a lot of people who are trying to understand who man is and what man is like and what's wrong with mankind and yet, if they don't understand the original created intent and purpose, how can they put things back together right? 
And that reflects what we're talking about tonight. If you don't understand God's purpose for marriage, then trying to talk about gender roles is like just a massive confusion. So let's start with that. Let's start with that. What's the purpose of marriage? Last week, I, I kind of alluded to it, but I'll say it more explicitly this way. The purpose of marriage really uh, has to do with friendship and modeling God's love. Here's the way Dr. Um, Dr. Jones, who's a seminary professor at Covenant Seminary, professor of ethics, says it this way. Often we're presented with a false choice between rigid sex roles and no sex roles at all. But the worst case scenario implied by the adjective rigid distorts the biblical perspective. God has ordained two complementary ways of being his image, of being human, of which neither is superior to the other. Role relationship in marriage does not imply superiority or inferiority. Understood biblically and Christianly, role relationship within marriage serves to focus responsibility so that the ends or the goals of marriage may be effectively attained. Well, what are those goals? And that's uh, the next quote down here. Um, Jones goes on, he says this, First and foremost, marriage is for the union of the couple in a sexually complementary companionship designed for emotional and erotic fulfillment. But it's also for partnership in the broad cultural calling of mankind. Procreation and dominion, including the new post-fall aspect of missions, is the joint labor of the couple as heirs together of the grace of life. Well, let's look at um, Ephesians chapter 5 and see how Paul talks about that and then dig into this some more. Thank you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, as you can see in this passage, right, you know, Paul says that men and women that were to submit one to another, right? So there's a joint calling, but then there's particular callings within this, right? And so it seems pretty basic, if you would try to understand what the Bible is teaching here, that there are different ways that men and women are to live in marriage, right? Uh, I think it's, it goes... Uh, it's easily drawn out from this passage that God has created us as equal but different. Men and women complement each other in a glorious way in marriage, um, but there are different 
roles for men and women. Now, the difficulty with this in our day and age is as soon as you talk about different roles, people hear different jobs, and then they hear, you know, differences in pay, and they think all these sorts of distortions, because not only is there the created way God has made us, but then there's the way sin has messed things up. And I would say, even though God has created men and women in a complementary way of imaging him, so sin affects those complementary ways of being human. And the fact is, when we try to look at this issue, there's tons of baggage from, you know, millennia of sin contributing to how we understand this. And honestly, um, in, in a lot of ways, men have dominated women in inappropriate ways, And so it's difficult to talk about that without women feeling that if I have a different role from men, then I'm automatically inferior and demeaned. Now, to understand biblically the issue of roles in marriage, you need to understand that you have to break the link between your value is based on what you do. And this is important not just for thinking about gender roles in marriage. This is important for thinking about Christianity, If you think that your worth is based on what you do, you're very far away from understanding what God says Christianity is all about. In many ways, Christianity is a revolution against that very idea. You see, God created mankind to work his garden and to take that garden, that cultivated part of creation, and expand it and extend it. He created a whole cosmos of God-glorifying potential. And he called the man and the woman together to bring out all of that God-glorifying potential in his world. And they were called to do that. And thus, work was given to human beings, not as punishment, but as wonderful opportunity to participate in his kingdom. The problem happens... When sin enters the world, everything gets distorted. And the things that God made, we try to change the purpose. In other words, God says the purpose of work is for you to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we try to rewrite his purpose. This is, in essence, what sin is about. And so we take work and we try to make it say, this is why I matter. This is why I'm valuable. This is why you should love me. This is why you should trust me, because I can provide and I can be dependable. And men do it and women do it. And whenever we do that, we're distorting what God said work is for. That messes up how we think about gender roles in marriage. It messes up a lot of stuff, but it messes up roles because we think that our role is what our worth is. And we've got to break that link. Because as long as you think that you're only as valuable as what you can produce or what you can contribute, you'll be forever messed up. Okay? So when the Bible talks about different roles for men and women in marriage, it's saying nothing about value or worth. Because in the Bible, your role is not where your worth comes from. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about your role in society, whether we're talking about your role in the church, or whether we're talking about your role in a marriage, your role does not determine your value. And you've got to fight against that. And here's the interesting thing. The Bible says that leadership is always about servanthood. 
But Jesus recognizes that actually it's not always that way. I know this passage is is actually on the back of your outline, but I'm going to bring it up here. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, that means all the non-Jewish people, exercise lordship over people, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. He means his disciples. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So in the Bible, leadership is always about servanthood and about bearing burdens. So so there's, you know, two things right away that are radically different than the way most people hear the Christian teaching on roles. Most people hear the teaching on roles and they think, aha, men are better because they're the leaders and the women are the helpers. So therefore, the men are superior and more valuable and the women are just sort of tag-alongs who are supposed to give up themselves and sort of find their worth in how they can help the man. And, and we hear it that way because sin has done that to a lot of relationships, not only ones throughout history and throughout various cultures, but probably ones that you yourselves have seen and experienced. But also that we think that way when we hear the Bible's teaching on roles because we think that Your job is what makes you matter and what makes you valuable. So there's all kinds of things that make it hard to talk about this. Furthermore, we think that leadership means, aha, I'm more important because I'm the leader. And what Jesus teaches his disciples is that's not the way you're to think of leadership. And then in the very next verses, right after that section I quoted, Jesus says, I myself am among you as one who serves. In another place, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the model for what leadership looks like is always about servanthood and dying. That's so important to see. So there are different roles. And you see that in the fact that men and women are given different directions. But that doesn't mean that there's different value to men and women, right? And thus, when Paul says in Galatians that we are all one in Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ, that's completely compatible with what he's teaching here in Ephesians 5, It's not like he got confused and then remembered. Like some people would say, in Ephesians 5, he reverts back to his chauvinistic Jewish training. But over in Galatians, he had this amazing insight that there really is no difference between anybody. Everything is all just the same. And yet here in Ephesians, if he even wrote it, and we're not sure he did, then he just got confused. That's not true. These things are compatible because in Galatians, he's talking about our value and why we matter. He's talking about justification, what gives you status before God. And he says it doesn't matter. It's not who you are. It's that we are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there's no difference. That's the context of this statement in Galatians. Here, fully understanding that, he's saying there are different complementary ways of being human in marriage. Nonetheless, you're all equally valuable in God's sight because what makes you valuable is not your role or your job or what you do, but who you are and in whom you are. If you're in Christ, 
then you are fully acceptable in God. Right? So, while a, a, a lot of people struggle with these, these role relationships, I think the first thing to say is there are role relationships. I know that may seem basic, but it's a, it's a point that I, I want to make sure you hear clearly. I do think, though, that um, often these role relationships are spelled out in ways where people go beyond the Scripture and, and sort of take sort of a particular tradition. I kind of like, you know, t- people tend to do this a lot with lots of issues, especially in the Christian church. They'll kind of go back in history until they find something they really think is great, and then they just kind of camp out there and say, this is what we should always do. And that certainly affects this issue. Um, you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, we need to get back to the good old days. A lot of Christians like to talk that way, and you just wonder, the good old days for who? Um, because often those periods that they refer to as the good old days were really very far away from God's ideal that the Scripture talks about, whether it's regard to racial issues or gender issues or all kinds of things. So there are role relationships, and yet often Christians have not listened to what God has said. They've went way beyond what the Scripture said, and they've made rules where God hasn't made rules. And that is absolutely true, right? So why are there different roles? Now, some people, this is an important issue, because some people would say, well, there are different roles because in Paul's day, it would have been just too radical for him to propose an egalitarian view of marriage. And therefore, he didn't want to just freak everybody out. Um, Because of sin, there are roles, but eventually, maybe all that will kind of give way. And some people argue that sort of way. Similar to, you know, um, there's a place where Moses allows divorce. And Jesus refers to this at one point in discussing the issue of divorce. And he said that Moses allowed divorce because your hearts were hard. In other words, it wasn't God's intention, but he gave an allowance for it, but it was never his ultimate ideal. Okay. And so some people say, well, similarly, roles in marriage, um, Paul's trying to move you know, move us down the road a little bit more, but he couldn't go all the way in his day. But eventually, if we can kind of bring about a more just society, well, then there won't be a need for roles anymore. And that sounds like it makes some sense, right? The problem with that is that Paul specifically says here in Ephesians 5 that the reason there are these roles has to do with the created order, not with, not with sin being in the world, okay? He appeals to, in verse 31, he appeals to the creation account, in Genesis 2. In other words, the order of creation is the reason there are different roles, right? And so a lot of people would say, well, what right does the biblical culture have to tell us how we're supposed to live in the 21st century? Um, Dr. Yarbrough is one of my favorite professors at uh, Covenant Seminary. used to say, the real question is, should post-60s Western culture dictate to God's people what clear biblical statements can and cannot mean today? And that's worth that's worth pondering. Often the obvious things to us in our day that the Bible seems so backwards and it's so obvious that this is the way it should be, obvious again to whom? To post-60s Western culture? And why should that be privileged over what God says? For a Christian, you have to wrestle with that, right? So, um, again, it gets back to epistemology. Now, here's what's interesting 
the Bible in various places gives different commands to men and women. And the way Tim Keller explains this, I think this is helpful. He says what it basically means is that men and women are good and bad at different things. And I believe the, the fall has certainly distorted what we're good and bad at. But the fall, sin entering the world, did not create the differences between men and women. Men and women are different because of creation. You see this when Adam sees Eve. You remember the first thing he says? He breaks out into poetry. This is, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She fits me, but yet she's different than me. In a remarkable way. She's like me, but she's not like me. In this remarkable way. Right? And so here's the issue. Traditionalists, and I'm putting sort of like more fundamentalist kind of Christians, when they think about gender roles in marriage, they tend to forget the fall. They tend to act like, you know, well, you just need to just kind of suck it up and do what the Bible says without thinking, well, how, have, how has sin affected the way men tend to dominate over women? Like it's not enough to just say, women just suck it up and submit. That's not enough to say with sin in the world. Uh, on the other hand, modernists tend to forget about creation and tend to think that the only differences are social constructions and that there's nothing inherent in our physiology and in our brain chemistry and whatnot that makes us different. I'm arguing that there is something, but I'm also arguing that often Christians try to go beyond Scripture in describing what it is. All right, so what are the different roles and get to the $100,000 question here. Here's a couple things I want to say, and then I'll get to my tentative conclusions. The similarities between men and women outweigh the differences. Hear me say that. Before you even talk about role relationships in marriage, there are so many things that are the same. You're both to love, you're both to repent, you're both to forgive, you're both to be committed, you're both to respect and honor one another. There's so many similarities, but there are differences. But the similarities vastly outweigh the differences between men and women. Second, while the Bible does affirm that there's such a thing as masculinity and femininity, seriously, the Bible doesn't go very far to describing what those are. And I think a lot of damage has been done to people who don't fit the stereotype because often the stereotypes are way too narrow. And I, I've seen this with men and women. I've seen it with women feeling like, you know, that there's a certain idea of what it means to be a woman and you have to love these things and you have to like these colors and these kinds of outfits and these kinds of things and you can't like these things or you're a tomboy, which is to say you're not really a full woman. I, I don't think that's very helpful. I think we probably need to expand our idea of what femininity looks like. Similarly, I think masculinity, particularly recently with the Wild at Heart books, I think offers a very narrow construction of what it means to be a man. In other words, you're a real man if you like to track moose, you know. Um, but if you're a guy who's called to serve God in an office cubicle, well, you're not a real man. I think that's very unhelpful. I think we need to expand our idea of the way men image God as men, right? I think there are, again, some differences, but I think we need to talk more generally and be careful about how specific you are because there's always somebody in your midst that doesn't fit the stereotype, and then you make them feel like there's something really wrong with them. Well, in fact, there is something wrong with them, but there's something wrong with you too. We're all sinners. We're all selfish. We're all distorted, but there are still general things we can say, right? 
Okay, and last thing, I think when you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be masculine and feminine and how that works out in marriage, you need to not just look at the commands that are given, the different commands, but also the way the curse in Genesis 3 affects men and women. Because I think there's insights on men and women in both of those places. So that's where these tentative conclusions are coming from. You ready? And then we'll open it up for questions. Masculinity centers around making an impact in the world. Again, not to say that women don't do that, but this is generally. So hear me, and then you can come back at me in a minute with questions. Men see themselves generally maturing as they become independent. Women tend to see themselves maturing as they become connected. I don't want to press this too far, but it seems that men tend towards independence and women towards dependence. Larry Crabb says, and he's written a book I think is helpful called Men and Women, Understanding the Difference. He's a Christian psychologist. He says, a woman is less centrally focused on achievement as a means for feeling secure. More she tends to value giving something of herself to nourish relationships and deepen attachments. Her focus is less on going into the world and more on entering a relational network. Tim Keller says it this way, what makes you, feel, what makes you male and female is not what you do, but why you do it. Men nurture in order to have impact. Women achieve in order to nurture. And I think we see confirmation of this in the way the curse affects men and women differently. You see, man, his work is cursed, but women's relationships are cursed. And I think there's something to that. Men's chief idol is usually their work, while for women it's usually their relationships. Again, every single person in this room could think of ways where that's not true in this regard or that regard. I think this is generally worth pondering, though. Second, I've said this a million times. Let me say it again. Roles do not value, imply value. Difficult concept in our modern society. I belabored this, so I won't say much about it now. But the idea of a helper, and I've said this several times in this series. I'll say it again because some of you haven't heard this maybe. When the Bible talks about woman being created to be the helpmate or a helper, that's not a demeaning word at all. As a matter of fact, it's a word mostly used of God who is described as Israel's helper. And so thinking helper is using your strength, using your strength to come alongside. That's the way to think of it. Men and women are complementary. It means that somehow they complete each other in a unique way. And while women may be more gifted at nurturing, for example, men are required to do it as well. Now, this is important. There's a, a bigger biblical principle here. You know, if you look through the New Testament, there are all these lists of different spiritual gifts, okay? Primarily in 1 Corinthians, there's one in Ephesians, and then there's also a list in Romans, okay? If you look at those lists, and you might do that, it's worth doing, especially at this time in your life when you're trying to think, what's God calling me to do? Your gifts are important for you to consider. And you might say, well, there's a gift of um, evangelism. Well, I don't think I have that gift, so I'm off the hook. I don't need to do it. Well, here's the thing. There is somewhere in the New Testament where every gift that's listed in those gift lists, there's somewhere a corresponding universal call for all Christians to do it. So you're not off the hook for anything. You might say, I'm not called, I'm not gifted at hospitality. I don't care. You're still called to do it. Well, I'm not gifted at evangelism. You're still called to give an answer for the hope you have. All Christians are. So the same is true in marriage. I can't just say, well, Wendy's the one who's a nurturer. 
so I don't have to be nurturing in any sort of way towards my children. Because that's her, that's her, she's gifted at that, and I'm not. No, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I'm to grow in is to understand more of what it means to be human in the way she's human and understand how I, I need that, right? So you can't just say, well, that's not my gift, okay? And yet there are things that you may be more gifted at, right? And it may look differently in different marriages, right? Like when we got married, like it would have been silly for us to say, well, she's the woman, so she should do all the cooking. That would have been silly in our context because she was working three 12-hour shifts as a nurse, which really meant like she was gone for like 14 hours. She'd leave, what, 5.30 in the morning and get home at like 7.30 at night. So if she has to cook, like that means we're eating really late. Plus, I'm 10 years older than her. I'd been cooking on my own for 10 years. She'd only been out of college, what, two years? Yeah. So I had a lot of stuff I knew how to do. It'd be silly for me to say, well, that's the woman's role. I'm not supposed to do it. But your relationships may be different. So don't get so hung up on that's the woman's role, that's the man's role. You have to take this wisdom of the complementary ways of being male and female. Then you have to conclude your particular ways of being male and female. And then you have to think about your context, your circumstances, all kinds of things play into this, right? All right, next. We need to use our gifts and roles to serve, not to control. Men are to use their authority to serve their wives, not to dominate them. And I think here Paul seems to belabor this point in Ephesians 5, doesn't he? He keeps saying, men, you're to serve. You're to sacrifice. And I think he feels the need to belabor this point because this tends to not be what men do. Right? It's not what men are naturally gravitating towards because of sin. Okay? Men and women have been cursed differently. And now men's independence tends to become tyranny and autonomy. And women's interdependence tends to become dependence and masochism. Uh, I I like this. um, You know, men are told to love and care for their wives. And women are told to respect their husbands. Which seems to be the thing that is most difficult for them to do. (laughs) And they play into each other. If the man is not fulfilling his role, it's much more difficult for the woman to fulfill hers and vice versa. Our sin even enters into this and makes it hard. Number four, what does it mean for the man to be the head? The way I understand it, as I've searched the scriptures on this issue and talked to many people over many years, is leadership, headship, means tie-breaking authority, and it's a burden, not a gift. One of my professors said it so well years ago. He said, um, what it looks like in my marriage is when my wife says to me, Honey, we don't know what to do. Neither one of us knows what to do. So we're going to pray about it, and then you have to decide. It's a buck stops with me authority when something has to be done. But honestly, I can't think of really using that very much in our marriage. And when I've tried to, it usually hasn't gone very well because it's usually in the midst of a fight, and I don't want us to come to a consensus. But usually, you need to keep working on it and come to a consensus. And, and, and this happens when there's like, you've got to move, you've got to do something, you're at an impasse, something needs to be done, but that doesn't happen very much. You know, seriously, I, I remember being on staff of a church where we had a really difficult decision, and it was a split vote, and the senior pastor had to cast the deciding vote, 
honestly, the more I think back about that over the years, we should never have moved forward. We needed to have more consensus. Okay, so technically the majority won, but you still had half of the leadership of the church that thought it was a bad idea, and we shouldn't have moved forward. We should have stopped and said, we don't need to take this decision yet. We're not unified enough. And I would say the same thing in marriage. Authority is not a privilege as much as it is a responsibility and a burden. And finally, Christ's love for his bride is our model. Christ's love. Now, the important thing about this is that you never get this stuff right. You never get this stuff right in marriage. And therefore, you constantly need to come back to Jesus and taste more of his love and get more of his love. But let me close it there and uh, open it up for, for questions.